Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship and ready to study the word. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's such a tremendous privilege we have this evening to come together to study your word, to recognize that all that we have and all that we are comes from you and that you are the God of of grace who has provided so much for us. And you have given us so much in your word that we can come to understand uh, your plans and purposes for our lives, and we can understand the plans and purposes for uh, human history, and our, each of our lives plays a role within that broad mosaic of human history as it's set against the backdrop of the angelic conflict. Now, fathers, we continue our study in the book of Revelation, continue to focus on the uh, ultimate result, uh, the end of the tribulation when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. We pray that we can come to appreciate how important that is and that it truly does have implications uh, for our the way we think today and the way we think about our life today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Revelation chapter 19, Revelation chapter 19, which portrays the climax of the tribulation, which is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in victory as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He will return in victory to destroy the works of Satan. He will destroy the armies of the Antichrist and the false prophet. He will wipe out and completely destroy the civilization of Babylon, the city of Babylon, and all that is involved in the cosmic system in order to cleanse the world from sin and evil and establish his kingdom. That's the focus of chapter 19. Uh, the chapter itself begins with a prelude in the first eight verses that serves as a backdrop to the real focal point, which is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and his victory over the forces of Satan, beginning in verse 11. And in the first part of this section, and that from 1 through 10, that serves as the prelude, in the first eight verses is comprised, as I pointed out last time, of four 
even five hallelujahs. It all depends on how you're understanding the terminology there because there are four uses of the uh, Greek transliteration of the word hallelujah, but the word itself means praise the Lord. It is a command, and so there are four uses of hallelujah, and then there is one Greek statement of the command itself which is translated as praise uh, God. So that gives us uh, actually five uses of the command to praise God in these first uh, ten verses. Now, as we get into the remaining part of uh, chapter 19, we get into some really interesting material biblically because we just get sort of a summary of the action here in chapter 19. The Lord Jesus Christ returns at the head of an army riding on a white horse, and the emphasis is on how he is uh, dressed, the fact that he on his head are many, many crowns, and he's clothed with a robe that's dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. He has other, uh, other names, and he has written on his uh, robe and on his thigh the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so the focal point is really on who he is as indicated through his d- dress and through his character. And then it culminates in the destruction of the armies of the, of the Antichrist and their punishment in the last four or five verses of the chapter. But this, as I said, is just a summary. There are dozens of other places in the Old Testament, in Isaiah and Jeremiah and uh, some of the minor prophets and Zechariah, as well as a couple of passages in the Gospels that give us much more information about what is going to happen, what's going to transpire uh, during this time when Jesus Christ actually returns to the earth. In fact, we don't really see much about where he's returning to the earth in this chapter as much as we see the manner of his return as he is going to establish uh, the reign of God upon the earth. And so we need to take some time to go through a lot of these different passages and try to pull all of this together. It's really a fascinating uh, fascinating study. So what I want to do as we approach that is to, first of all, just move through the material that we have here in Revelation 19 so that we can get an understanding of what John is saying in the 19th chapter so that we get that structure down. Once we have that structure down, then what I want to do is go back into these corollary passages in the prophets in the Old Testament and some other passages in the New Testament and then try to put it all together so that we can understand the structure, the chronology, the series of events that take place and how all of that then comes together in fulfillment of all of these various Old Testament uh, prophecies. So let's just spend a couple of minutes at the beginning with review of what I looked at last time in the first uh, six verses, these four uh, hallelujahs that are there, Revelation 19.1, 19.3, 19.4, 19.5 is when we have the command, praise our God, and 19.6 we have hallelujah again in the transliteration they left out the rough breathing, which is actually there in the Greek, which makes it hallelujah, but that is was not included in the um, in, in the transliteration uh, from the Greek 
The word that is so significant here is this word that you see uh, transliterated for you on the screen, hallelujah, in the Greek, which transliterates the Hebrew, hallelujah. The hallel is the verb in Hebrew for praise. The L-U ending makes it a second-person plural, uh, y'all praise. And then the yah is the first syllable in the name of God, Yahweh. There is no name of God in the Bible, Jehovah. That came, that wasn't uh, really, uh, didn't really come up until the late Middle Ages. Somebody put it together because in the Hebrew text, what you have is a four consonants for the name of God, uh, Y-H-W-H. And because of the influence of Germanic studies and uh, other languages where Ys are pronounced like uh, J's and or J's are pronounced like Y's and W's like V's. It became be, was commonly transliterated J H V H. And then in the Hebrew Bible, there are no vowels under those four letters. It always stands out in a Hebrew text that there's no vowel points underneath those consonants. And they the um, uh, scribes put in the vowel points for a different word. The Hebrew word Adonai meaning Lord because the Jews have such respect for the name of God that they will not pronounce it. Today they will usually read Hashem or the name, which is what Hashem means when they're reading through the Hebrew text. They don't actually read the name uh, Yahweh. And in the uh, Middle Ages they put this, the, cons- uh, the, the vowels for Adonai under the consonants for Yahweh to remind the reader to say Adonai instead of uh, instead of Yahweh. And so it looked as if it was a word spelled J-E-H-O-V-A-H. But the vowels came from another word, and the consonants were the proper name, and so there's actually no name Jehovah. Uh, it's interesting, over the holidays, I was uh, sitting outside at... Uh, my sister-in-law's and a neighbor walked by and he was a real happy sort of guy and we said Merry Christmas and he said, well, I don't celebrate Christmas. Oh, really? Okay, well, hope you have a happy holiday. Don't want to offend anybody. And he said, no, I'm a Jehovah's Witness and we don't, we don't celebrate Christmas. And I was being on my best of manners and I didn't say, really? Well, if you don't celebrate Christmas because it's not in the Bible, why don't, why do you call him Jehovah? Because that's not in the Bible. But I was being nice, so I didn't uh, say anything nasty to him. But that's always one of those little ironies that we run into. But the first name, the name of God as written in the Old Testament is Yahweh. We know pretty much how it's pronounced because that first syllable, Y-A-H, is the last syllable in uh, many names like Zechariah, God remembers, or Jeremiah. So you have, we know how that syllable uh, is pronounced. Now last time we looked at these four key alleluias at the beginning. And the first one relates to a praise to God for the destruction of religious Babylon in the first two verses. Now last time I didn't uh, point this out, but uh, I've, the text I have up there in the white is the New King James, which is very similar to the King James Version. 
but the words honor and and the Lord are not in either the critical text or the majority text, and it's only those are only in a very few manuscripts, which happen to be those that were used as a basis for the King James translation or the Textus Receptus. So the first verse should read, After these things, I, meaning John, heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Lord here seems to be reserved for the Lord Jesus Christ, whereas the focal point here is on the one who is sitting on the throne, who is God the Father. The Lord Jesus Christ is a distinct person, usually referred to as either uh, the Lord or also referred to as the Lamb, which is the uh, focus here in this chapter. Verse 2 reads, For true and righteous are his judgments. That's the judgments of the Father. At this stage, the Father has not given over that judgment uh, technically to the Son until the Son returns in victory, which is about to take place as the returning Son of Man as depicted in Daniel chapter 7. Verse 2, For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. That was how... Uh, the city of Babylon and her religious philosophical uh, ideas were portrayed as the great uh, harlot emphasizing immorality or unfaithfulness. And I pointed this out as we studied it, and I'll point it out again in some of our study tonight, is that the idea in the scripture is that uh, man is related to God on the basis of a covenant. And when a person is unfaithful to a covenant, that word unfaithful is the root meaning of the word that is translated immorality or adultery, and this word then becomes the word porneia or uh, immorality, unfaithfulness, or uh, fornication then becomes used to refer to spiritual unfaithfulness when someone is violating that covenant with God. Someone is in uh, the, in various forms of idolatry. They become spiritually uh, adulterous. So uh, the concept there of a harlot depicts her as being a system that is unfaithful to God. Uh, he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. So the first praise was for the destruction of religious Babylon. The second praise is for the final judgment on the city of Babylon that is rebuilt and will be rebuilt during the end times. Revelation 19.3, again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. So they are praising God for this complete and total and final destruction of the city of Babylon. The third praise is from those who are around the throne, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, and they fall down uh, in line with what has just been said, and they worship God who sat on the throne. And we've studied that phrase throughout the book of Revelation, seeing that it always depicts God the Father, saying, I'm, Amen, Alleluia. And then the next praise is the literal phrase, Praise our God, uh, all the servants and those who fear him are commanded to praise him. In verse 5, then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And then the fourth, hallelujah, stated in verse 6, 
And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And this is a call to praise for the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is then introduced in the next verse. So verses 7 through 10 relate to this fourth Alleluia, or fifth call to praise God. The marriage supper of the Lamb, which introduces a really important doctrine because it is directly related to the church. And we have not seen anything directly related to the church age believer since we finished the third chapter of Revelation. There's a lot of application that we've seen as we've gone through through the text, but there's nothing that has been directly in reference to the church since we finished the seven letters to the seven churches at the end of the third chapter. This is the next time after chapter 3 that we have a reference to the church indicating, again, that uh, the church is not going to be present on the earth during the time of the tribulation. And that certainly does fit in with the general pattern of marriage that we see in Jewish culture, uh, which must be understood in order to uh, capture what is taking place at this event related to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So let's just go through the next couple of verses, and then we'll tie some things together. First of all, verse 7 reads, It is a call to uh, all believers to, be, to rejoice, to praise God. Begins, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. So as we get into this text, we're talking about a voice that comes from the throne is the voice that is still speaking. It's unidentified. It's unclear. It's neither the Father nor the Son because it just doesn't fit with some of the things that are said here. So it is just an unidentified source making an announcement or uttering a command here. And three things are said about are addressed to the read, to those who are praising God at the time. They are to be glad, they are to rejoice, and they are to give God glory. These are the three verbs that are listed up there on the screen. The first word is the word Cairo. This is the normal word for joy or to rejoice. The noun form is kara, and this is in a present active subjunctive form. Now, I've indicated that all three of these verbs are in the same form, a present active subjunctive, and they are first, per, are, the first two are present active subjunctives, the last one's an aorist subjunctive, but they're all first person plurals. Now this is part of the idiom of Greek language. You, you don't have a first person command, but you would express that idea through the use of a subjunctive uh, mood verb, and it was expressed as an exhortation or challenge to a group of people where the the speaker included himself within those who were to be addressed. And you could perhaps compare this to an order or a command from someone who was in authority over you, whether it's a coach or a teacher or uh, someone in the military, 
You could hear of a teacher talking to the class and say, now class, let's all be quiet. That is a firm command. That is not just a simple suggestion, even though it's expressed in a what seems to be a milder form. Let us all be quiet. And it is nevertheless as just as much of it has just as much an imperative force as a direct command for everyone to be quiet. So this is the expression here. This is a first person command and it includes the speaker. That's why I said the speaker cannot be either the father or the son, cannot be a person of deity because the person is including himself in the command, the individual uttering this will also participate in giving glory to God. So the command then, let us be glad and rejoice. These are words that are synonymous. Uh, Angalio and Cairo both indicate joy, celebration, uh, exultation. This is a time of tremendous celebration before the throne of God because the end, the judgment of sin, the end of sin, the end of uh, evil upon the earth is being, ju- is being presented. And at the same time, it is a time for the uh, marriage of the Lamb. So let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And this is the marriage of the Lamb, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, to the bride, his wife, who is the church. The church is presented as the as the bride of Christ. And so this prepares the church to move into the millennial period as as uh, those who will co-reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one other thing I want you to notice, or I want to point out to you, is back in verse 4. Verse 4, we read that the 24 elders... And the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God. Now, when we studied the four, uh, the 24 elders back in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, I pointed out that even though there's a lot of discussion about who they are, it's very clear when you get into the Greek text and some of the problems with the manuscripts that, uh, there's really only a couple of manuscripts that have a, have a problem there that the vast majority, in other words, all but, I think it's all but two manuscripts, uh, indicate that the 24 elders are giving praise because the Lamb has redeemed them. So that means that the 24 elders can't be angels. They are those who have been redeemed by the death of the Lamb. So the 24 elders are a a representative entity representing the church. Now, the fact that there are 24 goes back to a similar uh, situation in the Old Testament where among all of the Levites and all of the priests, you would have a, a group of 24 that would be on duty. And those 24 represented the entire body of Levites and priests. And so the idea of 24 uh, elders also carries with it the implication of their priestly uh, their priestly function during this particular uh, during this particular time and that is no longer apparent after this they're never referred to again the church is never referred to as the 24 elders after the marriage with the lamb because their role shifts 
from a priestly role to a ruling and reigning role as the church will in resurrection body will be ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ during the millennial kingdom. And this is what you and I are being prepared for today is that future destiny to rule and reign with him in the millennial kingdom and then on into eternity. So there is a call in verse 7 to rejoice, to celebrate, because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Now, these two verbs should be addressed. They're both in the aorist, uh, aorist tense, which indicates past action. And so the what they are stating is not that the marriage uh, of the Lamb is happening then, but it has happened. It has taken place. The wedding has taken place. His wife has made herself ready. This has already been accomplished. It has taken place at past times so that now something different is going to be focused on, and that is the invitation to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is mentioned in verse 9, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we have to come to understand the, the difference between the marriage and the marriage supper and what these uh, indicate. Verse 8 explains how the bride made herself ready. And in verse 8 we read, And to her, that is the bride, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen. Well, what's the fine linen? Well, the text doesn't leave us to guess. It tells us it's clean and bright. And the idea of something being clean and bright, it's purified. It's been cleansed. It is white, bright, always a picture of holiness. It has, it's fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So it's viewed corporately, the righteous acts, these are, this is the divine good that has been produced in the history of the church, in church age believers, that uh, comes together as the adornment of the bride at the uh, marriage, at the wedding of the Lamb. Now, Before we get any further, we need to stop and take a little time to go through the uh, Jewish customs related to marriage. They're quite informative, and even though the uh, initial audience of the book of Revelation were not Jews, the writers were, and all of the Hebrew scriptures, all the background was was Jewish and oriented around Jewish marriage customs. And so we have to come to understand what is involved in a Jewish uh, marriage, in a Jewish wedding, and in the that which precedes it in terms of the betrothal. So there are uh, several steps that are involved in a wedding. The first step is the betrothal. The first step is the betrothal, and this would take place at least a year before the wedding itself. It could take place when the uh, bride and groom were just children as the father of the groom would make arrangements with the father of the bride, and they would indicate what the bride price would be, what the dowry would be, and then they would arrange the time at which the marriage would take place, what age would be appropriate for their children to to be married. Sometimes this occurred when they were small. At other times it occurred just barely a year before the wedding itself, and many times the bride and groom 
never met before the wedding itself. This was very likely the case with Mary and Joseph. It was likely that they did not, uh, may not have known each other at all. The wedding was arranged at some time, at least a year before the wedding occurred, but they would not necessarily have spent any time together before they were to get, uh, to get married. And the betrothal pictures the period of the church during the church age when the church has been uh, betrothed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has paid the bride price. He has paid the dowry by his death on the cross. The blood of Christ is a term for his spiritual substitutionary death on the cross. It is that which redeemed the church. And it was that purchase price paid for by the Christ on the cross that is equivalent to the, uh, to the bride price. And then the Lord, of course, was buried in the grave. And after three days, he rose from the dead. Then 40 days later, ascended to heaven. And at the ascension, he has left. This also fits the pattern that you would see in a Jewish uh, wedding and marriage ceremony. Now, just as a couple of corollary passages, we see this betrothal referred to or alluded to in Matthew 1.18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So between this refers to that betrothal period between the arrangement of the marriage and its the actual wedding day itself. Now, what else would go on during that time between the, the wedding, I mean, the arrangement of the wedding and the wedding itself? Well, the groom would leave, and it was the groom's responsibility to prepare for having a wife, to prepare a home, to have a, a place uh, built for the uh, bride to come to, and to, to have everything ready. He was to take the financial responsibility for the family, for the for the marriage, and so he would be involved in getting everything ready. And so it was not often known precisely when the wedding itself would take place. The bride would be waiting for the groom until he came uh, to fetch her and he would be away preparing the home for the future family. This also fits the pattern that we see in Scripture. In John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus told his disciples, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, John 14, 3 may not look like it to you on the surface, but that is a great rapture passage. Because what Jesus is saying is that he is going to go to the Father's house, which is in heaven. He is going to prepare a place for the church, for the bride, and he will come again and receive the bride to himself that where he is we may be also and where he is is in heaven until the second coming. And so this indicates that he is going to be taking the bride to the place he's prepared which is in heaven not on the earth. So when the Lord comes back 
At the rapture, he comes, and those believers who are alive are caught up to be with him in the air, and then they are taken to heaven. They don't come down with him to the earth, which is what the uh, post-tribulation view uh, suggests. So this is a great passage, but it fits the pattern of a Jewish wedding. The father arranges the uh, the wedding. The uh, groom goes back to the father's house, and from that uh, position he builds and prepares a dwelling for he and his bride once the wedding has taken place. And then once the he has prepared things, then the next step is for him to come and to get his bride. And he will come to fetch the bride. And at times, sometimes, that is not going to be announced. And he will come, and it will be something of a surprise that the bride, that groom is coming. And he will come accompanied by his friends in order to bring her back to his home. Now, what's interesting is that if you notice in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, verse 14, Paul says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. That is, when Jesus comes at the rapture for those who are alive and remain, then he will be bringing with him those who have preceded us in death. That fits the pattern that the bridegroom comes with his friends to the home of the bride to bring her back to his home. And so we see that in connection with the second step of, of uh, receiving his bride, he has it's the father of the groom who actually determines the timing. He's the one who's going to say, okay, you have prepared a proper home, it's now time for you to go get your bride. And the second thing is that the uh, groom has to have already completed this abode. So it, that fits the biblical pattern. Only the Father knows when the timing will be. The Lord Jesus Christ said it is not for us to know the times or the epochs and the seasons. Uh, it is only for the Father to know. So the Father determines the timing, and the Lord Jesus Christ prepares a place for the bride. So this corresponds to everything that we see and what the Scripture teaches about the uh, pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Also, we see that it is the Lord himself who will come for the bride. Verse 15, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is when those who are already with the Lord in their interim body, and I believe they do have some sort of interim body. Uh, we have several passages in Scripture that indicate that. Uh, it's not their resurrection body, but it is some sort of temporary abode for the soul. That... Um, but this is when they receive their resurrection body, and the dead in Christ rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now, it seems like there's some time differential there, 
But in actuality, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that it all takes place in the uh, in a split second, the twinkle of an eye, in about one sixty fourth of a second. And so that uh, even in that short amount of time, in just a nanosecond, the dead in Christ rise first, and we who are alive and remain go up with them. And people who are uh, on the earth and looking around will one second see us, and then we'll be gone. And there will be uh, numerous things that uh, transpire when all of a sudden all the, the believers are instantly removed from the earth. And I think that's going to create quite a scene of chaos throughout the earth. And I think part of the consequence of that will be to uh, uh, for the Antichrist to take advantage of that to secure power in order to try to restore order out of, uh, out of chaos. So we have the uh, the betrothal, then the coming for the bride, and then the third thing that takes place is the wedding ceremony itself. Now, f- only a few people were invited to a wedding ceremony. Prior to the wedding ceremony, the, the bride is prepared. She would go through a ritual immersion and uh, for ritual cleansing, which indicates the purification of the bride. This is analogous to the purification of the church at the Bema Seat, at the judgment seat of Christ, where the dead works of believers are burned off, consumed in fire, and the bride is left clothed with gold, silver, precious stones, the works of righteousness that are done through the power of God the Holy Spirit. So the wedding ceremony itself then takes place after the purification. So for the church, that means that there's the uh, there's the rapture, then there is the judgment seat of Christ, and then the wedding itself takes place in heaven at some time during the events of the tribulation on the earth. So that when we come to the end of the tribulation period, the marriage of the Lamb has already taken place, and following the marriage of the Lamb, then there would be a, a marriage supper or marriage feast. And this could last as many as seven days, and it might take place in uh, various uh, people's homes, and it was just an opportunity to celebrate the wedding and the union of the two people who had just been uh, married. And many more people would be invited to the feast then invited to the marriage ceremony itself. And so we see all of these steps portrayed in the way the uh, church is brought into its final uh, union with the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father made the arrangements, uh, the Son paid the bride price, and purifies the church. This is seen in Ephesians 5, uh, 25 and 27, that in the analogy, husbands love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it, that he might sanctify it, having cleansed it by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So following that uh, union, then there would be the the marriage supper, which is referenced in Revelation 19.9, which is the invitation that comes up. So let's just summarize a few things that we need to pay attention to as we talk about this. First of all, 
It's crucial to mark the distinction between the wedding itself and the marriage supper or the wedding feast. These are two different things. Often in our culture we have the marriage and then there's a reception afterward and uh, much the same thing would happen then, although the, the, the feast or the marriage supper might not begin until the next day and would then last uh, for a week or so. So this is the same sort of thing. Now, the marriage supper of the Lamb doesn't take place at this point. As we'll see when, we de- when I develop out the chronology, this is when the invitation is as the invitations are sent out this is referred to in several different parables in the old in the new testament actually in the gospels in Matthew 22 Matthew 25 we'll take some time to go through those to see how they relate but there's the invitation to the uh, marriage supper then the lamb will return he will destroy his enemies and then after the destruction of the enemies and the purification of the earth, the judgment of the nations, then there will be the uh, marriage feast, which is what takes place during a 75-day uh, interval between the second coming and the beginning of the millennial kingdom. So we have to keep that distinction in mind between the wedding, uh, which would have, and the analogy, taken place in heaven, and the marriage supper, which takes place after the second coming. Second thing we need to remember is that it's crucial to mark the distinction between the marriage of Yahweh in the Old Testament to Israel and the marriage of the church to Jesus Christ. These are two different relationships that are depicted in the Scripture. In the Old Testament, uh, Yahweh is depicted as the uh, as the husband of Israel. So that's the third point, actually. In the Old Testament, Israel is described as the wife of Yahweh. We see this in a number of different passages. Here are three of them. Jeremiah 3.14 states, uh, Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you, one from a city and two for, from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Isaiah 54.5, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies is his name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. Now, the word Redeemer there isn't referring to the Son. It's referring to the Father who is the architect of the plan of redemption. And then Ezekiel 16.8 when I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine. This is a reference to the covenant that binds Israel to God uh, in terms of the uh, Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. So this shows this covenant relationship that binds um, God the Father to Israel. Now, the uh, fourth point is that the basis for this marriage is this bond of the covenant. That's the basis for the marriage. But that covenant can be violated. That covenant can be broken through the unfaithfulness of, of the bride, which is Israel. When Israel succumbed to idolatry and disobedience to God... That was referred to as adultery. 
spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery is a biblical concept, but what it refers to is idolatry and disobedience to God in the, in the Old Testament uh, context. So when Israel was unfaithful to the covenant with God, that was identified as adultery or fornication. And Israel was consistently unfaithful to God, and this became part of the, the, the basis for God's judgment of the uh, northern kingdom and the southern kingdom prior to 586 B.C. So that God uh, says to Israel in Isaiah 50, verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Where's the certificate of your mother's divorce whom I have put away? So he's addressing that rebellious generation. And he asks the question, where's the certificate of the divorce? There isn't one. That's the implication from the question. There isn't one. When God put away Israel in discipline and kicked them out of the land, it wasn't a divorce. It was a separation. So there's no certificate of divorce. And he goes on to say, of which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? In other words, there's none. There was no creditor. God did not divorce Israel in the Old Testament. God is still faithful to his covenant with Israel. He is, he has never cut them off completely. He goes on to say, for your iniquities you have sold yourselves. In other words, because of your sin, you have put yourself in this position of separation. And for your transgressions, your mother has been put away. So this then is also the basis for the entire episode of the book of Hosea. Hosea is one of the strangest to our way of thinking. It's one of the strangest uh, books in the Old Testament because God commanded Hosea to go marry a working prostitute. And she continued to be a prostitute after they were married. She was unfaithful to him. And God was using this as a picture of his faithful love to Israel, even though Israel was being unfaithful to God, that Hosea was to be faithful to Gomer and not put her away, not divorce her in spite of her unfaithfulness. And so Gomer had one of the most unusual ministries and missions in the Old Testament to be married to a woman who was unfaithful to him, but he was to depict the uh, the unfailing love of God towards uh, failing sinners and uh, unfaithful Israelites. So that's the picture. Israel was unfaithful to Yahweh, but Yahweh never divorces Israel. He just puts her away for a temporary time. So, we come to the, the sixth point in Revelation 19.7. We have the marriage of the Lamb. This is not the marriage of Yahweh because since Yahweh never put away Israel, there's no remarriage. He is still married to Israel, and that analogy carries through on into the fulfillment of the covenants into the millennial kingdom. And so the marriage here is the marriage of the Lamb, to the church, and we must maintain that distinction between the church and Israel. Now, the reason this is important is because it comes down to the preparation of the bride for that future wedding, and that is our destiny as members of the of the church. We are the bride of Christ, and we prepare ourselves for that future uh, 
role and responsibility through our spiritual growth, through studying the Word, through our advance to spiritual maturity, learning to serve the Lord in the midst of a uh, world of hostility and opposition, so that in that context we learn uh, wisdom and the skills that come with thinking according to Bible doctrine so that we can then serve and reign with the Lord in the millennial kingdom. So that leads us to the seventh point, and that is that the church was not mentioned in the Old Testament at all. The church was a mystery, hidden in the councils of God. There's no uh, allusion to the church at all. You'll often find this among those who... Um, those who hold to replacement theology, that the Israel failed God, so God completely gets rid of Israel, and now we have the church. The church, the Israel was the church in the Old Testament, and the church is the, is Israel in the New Testament. That is replacement, uh, replacement theology, and that is not uh, what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that Israel has a plan. God has a plan for Israel. God has a distinct plan for the church. And that God will ultimately fulfill all of his promises to Israel. But the destiny of the church is a higher destiny and is related to the church's role as the bride of Christ and those who will rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the millennial kingdom. So, uh, the seventh point then leads us back to the purpose of Christ in maturing the church. This is the pattern that is given for husbands in Ephesians chapter 5. So um, Ephesians 5.24 reads, Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. See, husbands, you've got a tougher job. You know, women today always get upset whenever you mention women need to submit to the men. But, you know, ladies, you've got an easier job because men have to love you just like Christ loves you. And that's, that is much more difficult. Now you may be looking at your husband, don't do that right now, and you may think, no, you don't live with my husband, but, let me tell you, to love anybody who is a sinner the way Christ loves them can only really be accomplished in the body of Christ through God the Holy Spirit. Husbands are to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's a pretty rugged standard, guys, and it's much more difficult for um, for men, I think, to follow that standard. Uh, we are to love our wife as Christ loved the church, gave himself for her for the purpose that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. This relates to, to part of the role of the husband as the spiritual leader in the home, and part of his responsibility is to, as the leader, as the spiritual leader in the home, is to be involved in making sure that the family, that his marriage is oriented to the word, oriented to grace, and oriented to Bible doctrine, in the same way that Christ does that with the church. So the role of Christ was to sanctify and cleanse the bride, the church, with the washing of water by the word. It is only the word of God that cleanses us, removes the impurities of the sin nature, removes all of the impurities of the uh, human viewpoint thinking and everything else so that we might be 
transformed into the image of Christ, eventually truly sanctified. This is the point of verse 27, that he might present her to himself a glorious church. That is the point of of verse 8 in Revelation 19.8. To her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the church. That's what's produced through the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ through his word and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy, that is, set apart and without blemish. And this then leads to the uh, wedding invitation, Revelation 19.9. Then he said to me, this is the voice of the uh, probably an angel saying to John, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the uh, true sayings of God. Now we'll come back next time to look at what's involved with this and the parable of the marriage supper in Matthew 22. But for this, this evening, I just want to wrap up this initial section down through verse 10. Uh, in verse 10 we read, And I fell at his feet. This is the response of John as the one who is uh, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. And having heard all of this, he falls at his feet to worship him. And this is just the angel. But he, and he says to John, see that you do not do that. See, the point in Scripture is there are several times when there's an angel giving a message and some uh, somebody wants to fall down and worship the angel, and the angel says, don't do that. I'm not worthy of worship. But when the Lord Jesus Christ was on the earth and people would worship him, he never said that indicating he understood that he was complete deity. That is another reason why we must say that the voice that is coming out from the throne in this section is neither the Father nor the Son nor the Holy Spirit, but is an angel in service to the Lord. So John says, I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me or corrected me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. So this could indicate that it's a uh, resurrected member of the church, perhaps, since he says that he also has the testimony of Jesus. He says, worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And here the word prophecy is not talking uh, so much about foretelling future events. We have a problem with the word prophecy because we tend to think of it only as in that limited sense of foretelling the future. But actually, prophecy is a term that has more to do with uh, revealing God's will to man. The Old Testament prophet was a spokesman for God and revealed God's will to man. The priest was the uh, human being's representative to God. And so the role of the prophet was to declare the revelation of God to man. And so this is the testimony of Jesus as the spirit of prophecy, which takes us back to the very first verse in Revelation, which which states the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the title of this 
book. It is the revelation from Jesus Christ, not about Jesus Christ, as I stated when we began the study. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him, God gives this body of doctrine to Jesus Christ to reveal further to his servants. And um, that is what is alluded to here in verse 10. For the testimony of Jesus, that refers back to the unveiling of this revelation, is the uh, spirit of prophecy or the thought of prophecy. So that summarizes or ends this prelude to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the marriage of the Lamb has taken place. The marriage supper is being announced. The invitations are about to go out, and the heavens are about to open in verse 11, and the Lord Jesus Christ is going to descend upon a white horse, leading forth two armies, one army composed of church-age believers who are resurrected uh, and rewarded, and another group that are angels. But as we'll see next time, the only one who actually fights is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we'll come back and look at his return and all of the different stages of his return uh, next Tuesday night. So actually, I think we will get to Jesus' return, the second coming, before I depart for Kiev. But um, we won't get through all of it. There's a lot to cover and a lot of passages to cover, so we'll come back and do that next time. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening, to be reminded that you have a purpose and destiny for us as members of the body of Christ, members of the uh, members of the going to be the bride of Christ, in preparation for our future role to rule and reign with you in the millennial kingdom. Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us with what we studied, making us, uh, reminding us that every day is our opportunity to grow and mature as believers in preparation for this future destiny and that we are to redeem the time, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, and not waste any of it in terms of our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.